Well, let's turn our attention to God's Word. If you have your Bible, open it to the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, uh, simply grab one from the seats that are around you and, uh, and turn to 1 Corinthians, chapter 7. That's going to be in the New Testament, sort of the half, the back half of the second half of the book. So somewhere, somewhere in the third Bible. You may have to flip a little bit to find it. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, if you remember, several weeks ago, we began or re began our study in 1 Corinthians from a, a sort of a long hiatus where we picked back up here in chapter 7. And what we decided to do as a church was to go through chapter 7 a little more slowly than we, we typically would. Uh, we're really getting into the meat of the, of the letter here where Paul's addressing several key issues that, was, that were facing the church and the Christians there in Corinth. And so I think it's helpful because really the Corinthian church and the, the Corinthian culture is, is not unlike our own culture today. And so many of the topics that Paul addresses or that the Corinthians wrote to Paul to address uh, matter significantly to us. And so... In chapter 7, several weeks ago, we saw that, that, that Paul was addressing the issue of, of the polarization that happens in the Christian life. In one sense, you're pulled to do whatever you want because you feel free in Christ to do whatever you want without consequences. Or on the other, you're pulled to live sort of so rigid that you still really are performing to earn righteousness, performing to show yourself profitable. And, and Paul wants to say, no, those two ways of living are not in line with the gospel. When you're so free to live as you want, you're not actually living as you ought. And when you're so constrained, when you put a law upon yourself to live in ways that, that would burden you, you're actually not free in the sense the gospel has made you free. So he, he's telling the Corinthian church that the, the culture, which tells them to go one way or another, to, to, to be free to live as they want, or to live in only specific ways, is wrong. So he told us last week, we saw specifically on the issue of marriage. There was a thread of teaching in the Corinthian church and in the really the Greek world altogether that to, to engage in, in fleshly things, worldly things, was to debase yourself. That the material, including the, the body, was something to be despised. And therefore, you can either ignore it or you must subdue it. That is, deny yourself all worldly pleasures, including here we see in chapter 1 of verse 7, this idea that you should not even touch a woman, a man not to touch a woman. That is, that, that even marriage and sexual intimacy within marriage, it would be off limits. And so Paul, Paul rejects that, we saw, and says that marriage is good. Marriage is a godly thing that protects you, that purifies you. That is designed to give you and create in you a sense of partnership and pleasure with your spouse. And is to be, in some sense, as a Lord allows, to be pursued. Because it's good. But he also says in our text, in verse 8 and onward, that singleness also has its profitability. Singleness also is to be pursued and preferred among the saints as well. So what we're going to do is we're going to look... At verses 8 through 9, and then we're going to jump to verse 25, where he sort of picks back up on this topic again. 
So Paul says, to the unmarried and the widows. Actually, let's look at verse 6. Let's, let's read there. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. This referring to the, 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 the wisdom of, of refraining, married couples refraining from sexual intimacy for the purpose of prayer together. In verse 7, he says, I wish that all were as myself am. That is, single, not, not married. But each has his own gift from God, one of the one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now in verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of this present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as if they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. This is the word of God, and thanks be to God. Would you pray again with me? Father, as we come before your word, let us receive it in in humble submission. Let us acknowledge where we have not kept it, where it challenges us, where we must change in order to walk faithfully in light of it. Lord, help us by your spirit to understand it, to see the beauty of the gospel in it. And Lord, that you would, even in our marriages or in our singleness, conform our lives in such a way that we would honor you and give glory to you according to your word. We trust you now for this, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the last week we studied more in depth the issue of marriage and sex within marriage. We're looking now specifically this week to singleness. And as I mentioned in the last two weeks, singleness includes necessarily celibacy, that is, abstaining from and avoiding sexual relations outside of marriage. One of the key points that, that Paul's making is that, that sexual intimacy is for marriage and not outside of it. That's what the Bible would call fornication, and that is a sin. In fact, we see throughout the New Testament many of the vice lists, even that which is said to not allow those who practice such things into heaven, includes sexual immorality and fornication. So it's, it's already been stated and, and, and proved that sexual intimacy is for marriage. I'm not going to make that point too strongly this morning. 
Uh, I hope by now, as you, if you're reading and studying along, that, that point is clear. That sex is for marriage. And yet he says here that there is a value in singleness even beyond the sexual appetites and desires that we must control. I think it's important, however, though, to, to define what we mean as we talk about singleness and we talk about celibacy. Because many of us have a, an understanding or a misunderstanding of what those things are and what they mean that will distort or misinform how we then, as married or single Christians, live in light of God's Word. So let me first define what I mean by single. You may be single this morning by choice, meaning you, you are not married. You may be in a relationship. You may have a significant other, but you are not married. So by definition, I mean not married when I say single. If you've been together for 10 years, but not have joined together in the marriage union, I would say you are not married, despite the common law, which would, on paper, assume you to be. Before God, marriage is not Meaning, meaning single is not married. In fact, that's why we see, even as he speaks to the widows and those who are betrothed, that is engaged, as if they are not yet married. So though you may be in a relationship right now, know that before God, according to Scripture, you are single. And so the, the commands and the advice that Paul gives to single men and women, he gives to you. Okay, But you may be single by choice. That is, you are actively not Pursuing marriage at this moment. You also may be married or single by choice because you have either decided not to be married or you have desiring to be married, but you are not yet married. So you be married, you are single by choice and not yet married. You may be single and divorced. You may be single and have been deserted by your spouse. And you may be single. And widowed, that is, your, your, your spouse has died. You can fit into multiple of categories at the same time. The idea here is that you are not currently married, whether by choice or by circumstance. Single means not married. What I mean by celibate is this necessary and biblical command then for single Christians to be morally and sexually pure. Regardless of being temporarily or permanently single, this many commands, Romans 6, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, just in the chapter before, Galatians chapter 5, that tells the Christian to avoid sexual immorality, of which fornication is one. So to be single means necessarily to be celebrate, to be not engaging in sexual activity because you are not married for which sex alone is made. So to put this definition together, really singleness is unmarried celibacy. It's not just that you're unmarried, but you are unmarried and celibate. And, celibate. and that is the state or the status of those whom Paul is discussing now. He speaks to those who are betrothed. He calls them in the Greek virgins, that is those who have not yet been married. He speaks to widows whose spouses have died and have find themselves single again, and by those who have not yet a relationship or the prospects of marriage. 
And he tells them, this may be for your good and may be preferred in this moment. Singleness means unmarried celibacy. And we see that clear because what Paul is advocating here is not a sort of singleness to, to the, be free to roam the world, to live your fullest life, to amass a certain amount of followers on Instagram because you're an influencer, or to be the sort of uh, a lifestyle that you see others having and now because you don't have a wife or children or husbands you can mimic. That's not the sort of singleness the Bible has in mind. It has a singular focus in singleness. That is devotion to the Lord. You are unmarried, therefore celibate, and therefore committed to the Lord. Well, we may ask, why is something like this important for the church to think about? Why did Paul take time to to address married and single individuals, Christians in a church? Remember, one of the major problems in the Corinthian church was disunity. It was factionalism. And they would align themselves among different people, different preachers, different giftings, and they would say, well, my group is better than your group. Well, no doubt the singleness and the married state were often at odds with one another. And if you've been single for any amount of time within the church, you may have felt that distinction and that disunity even now. That as a single person, you have felt ostracized or not like others within the church. Or as a married person, you may feel like you don't get in or click with some of the single people that are going to church. And it's very easy then for Satan to drive a wedge because of that difference. That would lead ultimately to disunity and factions to the point where Paul would lament, is Christ's body divided? Is Christ's body torn in two? So it's important, this issue of singleness. It's easy for us married folk to sort of look at singleness as a phase, to pat them nicely on the head and say, your turn will come, young one. And even maybe jokingly say, you know what, you're kind of better off. But really being proud of our marriage and thinking it's better. Now Paul wants to level the playing fields in a lot of ways and says that here in verse 7, chapter 7, Marriage is a gift. Singleness is a gift. In fact, he even advocates for the preference of singleness in certain cases. And so singles, whether you're temporarily single or you're permanently singled and have no plans to marry, know this, that single you, if you desire to be married, will be married you. And so the idea of knowing what singleness means as a Christian is important even if you desire to be married. Because single you will be the married you, the way you fight sin, the disciplines that you practice now, the way you come before God in prayer, the the way you communicate with others in the church, that will not change drastically when you're married. In fact, it becomes more difficult to follow and pursue godliness in some ways. So it's important to understand your singleness at this moment because when and if you do get married many of the habits good or bad will be carried into your marriage if the married you it's important to understand singleness because you will be a parent Lord willing one day and be raising single children and it will be then your duty to help your single children understand their obligation to the Lord before they become married 
And to the married couples also, we know that we will experience singleness again. Maybe after the death of a spouse. Or indeed, if one of our spouses deserts us. God forbid. If we have children, we're going to raise up single children. And so both for singles and married, it's important to understand both the good and the gift of marriage and the good and the gift of singleness. This promotes unity within the church. The church, of course, is comprised of married couples and single persons, families, married couples with single children, and single brothers and sisters who come to church. So for the purpose of displaying this healthy understanding of marriage and singleness, it enables us to to build one another up. The body together is more unified and stirs up one another to love and good works as we understand and help one another in our state. Which means, single folks, you can be helped by the married couples in your life. And even married folks, you can be helped and encouraged by the single brothers and sisters in the church. We both are to build up one another in the body, in love, irrespective of our marital status. We're also to guard against ungodly discontentment and unbiblical misconceptions about marriage and singleness. And having brothers and sisters who are both married and single allows us to understand what life looks like as a Christian in many ways. So a biblical perspective on on singleness is important. This is why Paul writes the letter. He's speaking to a divided church, a fractioned church, a church which is often pitted against each other in various forms and ways. He's already said you need to control your sexual temptations and desires. In one sense, you do that by getting married. But in another sense, single people do that by committing themselves to the Lord and to the church that they too can fight sin. But this isn't the, the common view of singleness. It's not the common approach to singleness, even in the church, but especially in the culture. Just think about it for a second. The common view of singleness in the culture is one of of freedom, right? That marriage is a burden. It's settling down. And so singleness in the culture is to be preferred or at least to be punted downfield, do something when when you've sown your wild oats and now you're ready to maybe establish a little bit more stability. Even more increasingly, the notion of marriage is being cast out where couples will live together, have children together, start families, and share life together without actually committing to one another in marriage. So in our own culture, marriage is being pushed aside, where singleness is preferred, or at the very least, marriage is to be avoided. In another sense, self-serving, singleness is really the self-serving exploration. You get to, to do what you want, to indulge yourself for a time without the consequences or responsibility, without being tied down to a, a husband or a wife. You've got no commitments to another person, and therefore your actions only will affect you. You've got no responsibility or accountability to another partner in your life, and therefore singleness gives you the maximum amount of freedom. You can explore Everything you'd like. And in a negative, we can also see that singleness in some factors is viewed as an indication of being uh, undesired or or unwanted. So many people, Christians or not, view their singleness as something that is bad. Well, some parts of culture say singleness to be preferred. Some also might say that it means you're not wanted. No one loves you and you will never be married. 
And so the single person is left to either think that singleness is best because he can or she can do what they'd like, or that singleness is to be despised because it means nobody wants them. So singleness, in one sense, is preferred. But in the church, in my experience and in others, marriage is often preferred above singleness. We think marriage is the sanctifying process by which we become more like Jesus, and singleness does not produce sanctification. That is, singleness was a burden and merely a phase to a higher degree of sanctification. Now, we know for those who are married that there is a sense in which we know more about ourselves and are challenged more in our sin than we were as single individuals. But we go so far often in our church to assume that marriage is to be preferred above singleness, even against Paul's own words here. Often singles are shut out from life's closest relationships and therefore from life's most valuable lessons and we think they belong to a second tier form of Christianity but they're to be pitied in fact if you spend some time with a single person and you ask them about their experience they'll often express a sense of ostracism or loneliness even in the church they don't feel welcomed or part of the body because when they gather with the church Their singleness is evident. It's the topic of their conversation. Or the marriage or the families of others is a topic of conversation. So what they have in common is outshadowed by that which is different. Well, both in our culture and our church, we need to come to a biblical perspective of singleness and why it matters. Not just for the single person's sake but for the unity and the witness of the gospel in our churches. So let's move together then toward a perspective biblically informed on singleness. In our text this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul gives us a clear example of what singleness means. He says in verse 7, singleness is a gift. Now, just as marriage is a gift, a good and godly gift that is meant to help us, grow us, challenge us, protect us, to give us joy, singleness, he says, is no different. And we can pause right there and and just ask ourselves, do we theologically and experientially put marriage and singleness on the same plane? If you're single, do you see marriage as the goal? Or you see yourself able to accomplish all that God demands of you and requires of you, even in your singleness. At one point, we were all single. And I can remember accounting for my life and what the Lord, I believe, led my my life in in a particular direction, needed to be married. I I, I saw that the way to accomplish that which the Lord had given me to do had to be through marriage. But friends, that is a false view of understanding what the Lord requires of his people. Now, he did, thank God, give me a wife and knows that I needed a wife. And yet never does he promise or demand marriage in order to accomplish his will for Christians. We think about all the things Christians are commanded to do, to worship, to preach, to evangelize, to sing, to live in a holy way. None of that requires marriage. And so as a single person, if you put marriage elevated above singleness, your own singleness, you are mistakenly making your means by fulfilling the will of the Lord 
uh, given to marriage only. Meaning, if you cannot be married, you cannot fulfill the Lord's will for your life. That's just not the case. Marriage is a gift, and singleness is a gift, both of which will allow you to do all that God has called you to do. Singleness is a gift, which means that discontentment, single people, with God's plan or timing, ultimately is a rejection of the gift of singleness. And ultimately, it's a dangerous distrust of God's sovereignty and His promises and His purposes in your life. If you're single this morning, meaning not yet married, and feel burdened because you are not, consider that your discontentment is ultimately a rejection of God's purposes and His providence for your life at this moment. Will you be single forever? I don't know. If you're called to marriage, God will lead you to marriage. But to be discontent is ultimately to reject God's gift. It's ultimately to distrust God's sovereignty and promises and purposes for you today. But let me clarify, desire to be married is not an ungodly discontentment with singleness. Remember, even the Lord said it's not good for a man to be alone. Marriage itself is good. So to want a good thing is not the issue here. The issue here that leads to a rejection of the gift of singleness that you may have and possess or the distrust of God's sovereignty and purposes for your singleness now really finds its view in an attitude of idolatry. Again, when marriage becomes the mission and when marriage becomes the goal, when marriage becomes the lens by which all things channel in order to fulfill God's word and will, you misunderstand and make an idol idol out of marriage. More specifically, because you misunderstand marriage in that sense, you make an idol out of sex. You make an idol out of loneliness or neediness or whatever you believe marriage will do rather than the good and godly gift that marriage truly is. And so it's that kind of idolatry that marks the sinful discontentment with the gift of singleness that Paul here is telling those to to not embrace. He says... You should be as I myself am. I wish that all were as myself am, that is single, but each has his own gift from God. It is good to remain single as I am, but it is also good to marry, for both singleness and marriage is good. In fact, it's worth noting in verse 8 when he says it's good, the word there is beautiful. It's excellent. It's not just something like good, but inherently to be desired and beautiful. Do you think of your own singleness, friends, as something that is admirable, that is excellent, that is beautiful? Married folks, do you look at the singleness of of the Christians or your brothers and sisters around you and say, this is a beautiful thing the Lord has given you? He says that it is beautiful. It is a beautiful thing, verse 8 for them to remain as they are, to be single. Singleness is a beautiful thing, but it's also a valid and worthy and strategic way to honor Christ. Look in verse 29. He says, the the appointed time has grown very short. The end is near. We are living in the last days. And so you should be free from the troubles. And he says in verse 28, those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. And I mean that there, there, there's an appointed time which has grown short. 
And therefore, you should be devoted wholly to the Lord and not divided in your attention if you're able to. He's he's teaching us there that singleness is a worthy and strategic way to honor Christ in the last days. Verse 31, he says this again. Those who deal with the world as they had no dealing with it, the present form of this world is passing away. Therefore, singleness provides an advantage to you in these last days as a Christian. We don't mean that because the Lord can come any moment, we shouldn't get married. What he says is the Lord has promised that he will return again. And we are indeed living in the last days, in this chapter of church history, that the Lord may indeed come. His return indeed is imminent. And we, as Peter tells us, should be longing and expecting him to come at any point. We don't cast off marriage altogether, but our greatest joy and our vision ultimately is focused on there and therefore singleness is to be considered as good as a strategic way to honor Christ in these last days he says of course in verse 28 verse 32 that you can be free from the good but distracting troubles or concerns or anxieties of marriage spouses do you have anxieties that are caused by your marriage you should Concerns about whether or not you can provide for your family or questions about how to best raise or train your children, about how to best love and serve your wife. Those are all good but necessary concerns and anxieties that come with marriage. Friends, if you're not married, be grateful that you have no such concerns. Those concerns or troubles or anxieties free you to be undistracted to please Christ. As he says in verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. The married man and woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife or husband. You can have, it says in verse 35, an undivided devotion to the Lord in your singleness. Now this is, this is Paul's desire for those even with whom they have a significant relationship. Marriage is different than engagement, which is different than dating. For this particular purpose, the commitment you make is the responsibility you take to love and serve one another and provide in various ways. Friends, if you are not married, you are free from such a responsibility, at least for now. And therefore, you are obligated to steward the gift of, of, of singleness by giving yourself an undivided devotion to the Lord. So singleness is a strategic way to honor Christ. Married folks, do we encourage our single brothers and sisters and children to use their singleness to honor Christ? Single brothers and sisters, do you consider your your current status as unmarried as something that which can honor Christ with your time? Notice also in verse 17 that singleness is a resource for the edification of the church. Let's see what he says here. He says, only let each person lead the life that each was assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Together, the married and the single must work in unity together for the building up of the body of Christ. He says in Ephesians chapter 4 that we, we are to build one another up in love. And so singleness can be a resource for the edification of the church. Just as marriage is a resource for the building up and the sanctification of brothers and sisters to whom marriage is given, singleness can be used for the good of the church as well. 
that is service to Christ is service to his bride. Undivided devotion to the Lord means you give your undivided devotion to the Lord's people. Therefore, you have freedom to serve him, which is freedom to serve her. That is every gift that you have, marriage or your singleness, is for the edification and the building of the body of Christ. He'll go on to speak more about this building up together, this unity in chapter 12. And so in our text here, we see that singleness is a beautiful gift, that it's good, and that it's a strategic and worthy way to honor Christ in these last days. And that above that, it can be a resource in a way that you serve the church as you serve the Lord. Let's just take a step back for a moment and just ask, how am I serving the church with my marriage and with my singleness? And we can make the case easy as married people that if you're single, you should be the ones who are more involved in the aspects of the church. And indeed, single people, you should be willing to be more used. If you're single, you should be cleaning the church and not require people with three kids to come and do it, or two kids or one, or at least give them deference. It's a way to serve them. Why? Because you have more time. You have less anxieties. Look at you, Tato. Come on. And yet, if you're married, this is not a case to throw all the burdens onto the single people. Paul's point here isn't saying the single people are the maids and the servants of the church. In fact, he's saying single people are free to give themselves undivided to the Lord in service of the church. But you yourselves are to give yourself completely. He's not to say that all anxieties are bad. These are good, worthy anxieties, marriage or otherwise. But to each, God has given a gift. And each, God has called into particular ways. So consider how you are using your singleness, friends, for the good of the, God, of the Lord's church. That is, for the good of God himself. It's not just here in 1 Corinthians 7 that we can inform our perspective of, of singleness, either our own singleness or, or another's singleness. I mean, even in Genesis chapter 1, we see singleness in light of creation. God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. He created them male and female. He says, this is who I am, revealed in both man and woman. So God's design for biblical manhood and womanhood still holds true in singleness as much as it does in marriage. Though there is a sense in which the complementary roles of male and female come together in marriage to display in a unique way God's image, you are no less a display of God's image as unmarried. As that is, as a single woman, you still give forth the radiance of God's imago Dei that is imprinted on your very person, whether or not you're single. As a man, you are still uh, a biblically before God a man, though you do not have a woman. That is, communion with God is every man and woman's chief end. Again, the end goal is not marriage or communion with the spouse, but communion with God. He made them in his own image, and he made them for himself. You must also view singleness not only in light of creation, but in light of eternity. In Matthew chapter 19 and in Mark chapter 12, Jesus teaches his disciples that there is no marriage in heaven. And that's not to say that I forget my relationship with Brittany, who she was, 
or what the Lord has done in, in uniting us together in marriage. But it is to say that our marriage has served its purpose and is no longer required in, merit, in, in heaven. That is, the reality is greater than the picture. Marriage is to be an echo and a picture of heaven. And when the reality comes, the picture can be put away. That's Jesus' point there. So friends, if you're single, know that your singleness in this life is no disadvantage in heaven. In fact, it can be said that you are more like your heavenly self now than you are when you're married. Because there is no marriage and none given in marriage in heaven. So the gift of singleness affords Christians the choice to faithfully wait and treasure the consummation in a unique and tangible way. That as you wait in these last days, as they pass away, he says, you have the option and the opportunity as a single brother or sister, a single Christian, to devote yourself as you wait faithfully and as you treasure expectantly the consummation or the return of Christ and the ushering in of a new heavens and new earth and a unique and tangible experience. Singleness in light of creation and in light of eternity is important, but also singleness in light of the church as a whole, meaning you should value your membership in the bride of Christ, seeing your status not simply as single or unmarried, but actually as betrothed to Christ. To simply say, who am I engaged to? Who am I committed to at this moment? Well, if it's not another brother or sister in the Lord who will be my husband or wife, I belong to Christ completely. You should value your membership, Christian, in the bride of Christ as betrothed to him. Jesus is called the bridegroom and the church is called the bride. That is, Jesus has come to usher and bring to himself a bride that would be unified and exercise communion with him in salvation. If you're part of that church, that means you are committed to Christ and your singleness gives you a unique way to be fully and wholly committed where marriage may not. Again, that's not to let husbands and wives off the hook. They are still to devote themselves to the Lord even in their marriage. But we recognize singleness provides and affords a unique opportunity to do that in new and in fresh ways. That is, the call to submit in marriage of husbands and wives to submit one another is an echo of the call to submit to Christ in the church. And so submission and commitment is not exclusively a marital idea. It's not simply that which is reserved for Christians who are engaged in marriage together, but actually for every Christian to be committed to Christ. Marriage amplifies that commitment. But each one of us, single or not, is called to be committed to Christ and submit ourselves to him. And therefore, friends, seek the protection of the church from sin which may be heightened due to singleness. Especially sexual immorality. When, when, when Paul says that this is, this is a good reason to get married, he says because of the sexual immoralities there in verse 2. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. If you are single for this moment and your prospects of marriage don't look particularly optimistic for you or you've chosen specifically to devote yourself for a season or for the rest of your life to marriage, you're to submit yourself to Christ under the protection of the church. This goes beyond just sexual immorality to protect ourselves from, but it actually comes to fulfill that which we are made for, community and intimacy, 
friendship that we have with one another. Sacred devotion and Christian friendship in the church replaces the community of marriage and family in the life of a single person. Consider Paul. Consider Jesus. Those who were single devoted themselves to the work of the church and they found deep and lasting community among the brothers and sisters there. Were they lacking in sanctification? Were they lacking in friends? Were they lacking in intimacy with the Lord and with the body of Christ? No. Every longing piece of their heart and mind was filled by the fellowship of the saints and their communion with the Lord. That's not to say that you may desire to be married if you're single and not have marriage given to you. But it is to say that you can be completely filled in your relationship and your desires for which you were made within the church. So you must view your singleness not only in light of creation. You are a man and woman before God. That you were made for communion with God greater than in communion with any other man or woman. View your singleness in light of eternity. That even now in your singleness, you are a greater picture of what heaven will be like in a unique and tangible way. And view your singleness in light of your church. You are a member of Christ's bride. You are betrothed to the Lord himself. And all of your deepest desires and affections can be met and filled in the community of the church and with your communion with the Lord. So let me give some exhortation to some single folks for however long you might remain so. First, friends, find your identity and commitment in the Lord and him alone. Again, do not make marriage the goal, but God is the goal. See, the greatest gift of singleness is not the freedom from the anxieties that come with marriage. The gift of singleness is the Lord himself, unreserved and undivided. It is a good gift to have access to the Lord without the care and concerns and burdens of marriage, as good as they may be. Your identity and commitment must come from the Lord. That is, do not first view yourself as a single Christian, but view yourself as a Christian devoted to the Lord that is as of yet unmarried. Secondly, trust in God's faithfulness to deliver upon his promises. He does not promise marriage to everyone, but he has promised that he will bring himself, his people to himself, and he will return again. Trust in God's faithfulness to deliver upon those promises. This is what Paul commended to the Corinthian church. He advises those to remain as they are. The Lord will come soon. Set your hope and your confidence and God's faithfulness to deliver upon his promises. not about whether or not you should be married or not married. Indeed, beyond your circumstances, married or unmarried, he even speaks to slave or free. He says to live as though the Lord will return, and that is your greatest desire. Third, single friends must seek purity and righteousness as you wait upon the Lord. You are instructed and commanded to give yourself to the Lord in purity. It is especially important to understand that marriage, because it protects you, will leave you vulnerable if you are not married. And therefore seek to find the protection for purity and righteousness within the church and within the communion of other brothers and sisters. Fourth, plunge yourself into enriching relationships within the church, both married and other single people alike. Do not waste the gift that God has given you by exercising it in the midst of your community. And lastly, seek opportunities to leverage your singleness for the benefit of others. 
That is, you can be there earlier or later. You can go further and do more. You can give greater because God has given you the gift of singleness. Seek to leverage your singleness then for the benefit of others, for the advancement of the gospel. That looks a lot of different ways from church to church and from family to family. The best thing you can do, here's some homework, is to identify and connect with a married couple and the church for mutual encouragement and edification. That is, you can ask yourself, am I using my freedom from the pressures and responsibilities of marriage and family for the edification of the church and the advancement of the gospel? And begin to answer that question by taking a tally, for instance, of the hours in your week that you spent in disciple-making versus work versus private or personal things. In fact, bring another Christian into that self-assessment as you consider, am I using the singleness as a gift to be stewarded rather as something to be despised? But married couples, I also have homework for you. You're not off the hook. You should also identify and connect with single people for mutual edification and encouragement. Know if you might resonate with them that sometimes it is difficult to be alone. Bring them into your home. Invite them in. Feed them. Buy them things. Hang out with them. Be their friend. Married couples can give much because they have been given much. And the gifts and the privileges of singleness are different. And so single people can also serve, help, and even teach us married folk. Just by way of biographies, I want to just give you a couple influential single Christians that have been really impactful to my life if I studied their, their lives. First is the missionary David Brainerd. You can uh, online find the life and diary of David Brainerd uh, for free. And Jonathan Edwards wrote a really great uh, a biography of him as well. Uh, this was a brother who had given himself completely to the devotion of the Lord. Also, you may have heard of another brother named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, you can read biographies of him who also was single. And he, in very real and tangible ways, gave himself to the Lord, literally. And, of course, Lottie Moon, who's special to us Southern Baptists, uh, also was single. And uh, gave herself to the Lord for missions. And so she's got something in his biography by Keith Harper called Send Delight which is a bunch of letters and other writings of Lottie Mood. And, and so you can see in just the example, this short example of, of brothers and sisters who the Lord used in their singleness, not despite their singleness, but because of their singleness. And uh, there's lots of other resources I can point you to afterward. Uh, but friends, know that your singleness and singleness in general is a good and godly gift, just as marriage is. And it adds to the unity of the church when we understand singleness not as a passing phase, as something to be lamented or ignored, but actually that which is good for the church and good for the single person. And if you're single this morning and you really just don't understand why any good could come from it, then I want to encourage you to continue this discussion with brothers and sisters, married or unmarried alike, as we, as we meet this week. Well, Father, thank you for the gift of, of marriage and single, singleness. It, it is indeed a, a gift of the church. To, to use and to leverage for the gospel, whether it's our marriage where we are learning in, in unique and difficult ways to, to humble ourselves and serve those who know us most intimately or in our singleness to 
to set aside our preferences and often desires to be known in a certain intimate way, to have our, our, our longings and desires fulfilled ultimately by the community and the, the, the knowledge of Christ. That we can use our singleness for good. That it's not a, a thing to be despised, but a, a joy and a gift to be treasured. Well, Father, there's so much more we could say, Lord, but we ask that by your Spirit you would teach us and humble us and allow us to walk faithfully. And uh, Lord, as we, as we consider what it means to be a church, we recognize that we come from many different places and statuses. And we often may look at each other's lives as, as better or worse, to be pitied or to be envied. But Father, we, we pray now that we would consider our own state and say, it is you who have brought us here, and therefore we will steward that which you have given us for as long as you have given it to us, not for our own glory, but for yours alone. Lord, we, we pray and we ask these things in the light of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.